Our second reading this morning. Can you hear me? Am I more on than that last microphone was on? All right. Our second reading this morning is from Romans chapter 8, verse 16 through 25. Romans 8, verse 16 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, we ask that you would be with us this morning. This is your word. Uh, You have written it for your people. We pray that uh, the same Holy Spirit which inspired this word might illuminate our minds as we dig into it this morning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen, 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 amen. So last week we talked uh, about the benefits that come to us as adopted sons and daughters of God. It's not just that our record of sin is wiped clean, but it's also that we get credited to our account the full goodness of Jesus. And we get to be his brothers and sisters. We get to be heirs, inheritors, joint heirs of everything that Jesus stands in line to inherit. It's a pretty remarkable situation as it turns out, especially as we began our story here on planet earth as slaves, slaves to sin and as enemies of God. And so it's a complete turnaround. It's a complete reversal of fortunes and status. That's what the Bible calls salvation. And that's what's offered to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The promised blessings that were rattled off in last Sunday's reading culminate in verse 17, which we reread this morning. And it says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, which is an amazing place to be. It's actually a supernatural boon. It's a powerful bundle of wow. But maybe we read a little too quickly or mumbled our way through the words that immediately follow, which say, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let me read the whole thing together so that we can see the connection. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So let me say right off the bat that Paul isn't talking here about a quid pro quo. A quid pro quo is a deal where you give me something of value and I will give you something of value in return, a kind of economic exchange, even if money isn't involved. That's not what's happening here. Paul isn't saying that if you suffer, then God will repay you with glory. God doesn't ever say, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. God doesn't make those kinds of deals. We need to be really careful about thinking that we can negotiate with God. God, I'll clean up my act if you'll get me out of this jam. God, I'll start going to church if you will straighten out my marriage. God, I'll start tithing if you give me a pink Cadillac. Martin Luther actually tried to make a deal like that. In 1505, he was caught in a terrible thunderstorm and lightning struck so close to him that the concussion in the air knocked him to the ground. And in his fear, he prayed to St. Anne. Probably mistake number one. And he said, if you spare my life, I'll enter a monastery. Probably mistake number two, or at least that's what the Catholics think, considering what a lot of trouble he stirred up once he got into that monastery. God doesn't make deals. God doesn't negotiate. And you know why? Because there's nothing God needs. God doesn't need Luther to be a monk. God doesn't need you to start tithing. A quid pro quo is a deal where you give me something of value in the expectation that I will give you something of value in return. Our problem is we don't have anything of value to give God. We don't have anything God needs. We don't have anything to negotiate with. As Jonathan Edwards said, we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And that's kind of harsh, but it's the truth. God is so far and away greater than us that there is just no way that there is anything that we can offer him that he doesn't already have. And so we're not in a position to negotiate with him. Years ago, I was traveling in Morocco with Sam Wood's little brother, Joe. And one day we rented some bicycles and we took a ride into the countryside. And we stopped at the side of a road to have lunch. And there we met a couple of young men, roughly our age. And we ended up spending the afternoon with them and their families. One of these guys, Mustafa was his name, got it into his head that he wanted two of the things that I owned. My mirrored aviator sunglasses, this was the 1980s, and my red cowboy bandana. Now, the truth of the matter was that those two items were not for show. We were in a desert country. Those glasses took the edge off the sun. The bandana was probably the most important piece of clothing that I had brought with me. It kept the sun off my neck. It could mop my sweaty brow. And I could pull it up over my nose and mouth 
when there was a lot of dust in the air. I wasn't interested in giving up either of these items, but Mustafa wanted them, something fierce. Now, he didn't have any money. They were very poor, these people. And so he began to try to barter with me using anything that he had. A belt, scarf, how about a pillow? A box of dried lima beans. Why would I want a box of dried lima beans? I hate lima beans. I wasn't trying to drive a hard bargain, but Mustafa didn't have anything I wanted. End of story. So when Paul says that we are children of God and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided... We suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul isn't suggesting that glory is a quid pro quo for suffering. That glory is what God gives us as a payment for our suffering. Paul isn't saying that. What Paul is saying, however, is that there is an unavoidable connection between the two. In the life of every Christian... There will be glory, but there will also be suffering in this life. And anyone who is glory-bound should know that suffering is going to be part of the journey. Now here's what the footnote to the 1599 Geneva Bible says about this verse. I think it's accurate, even if the language is a little old-fashioned. Now Paul teacheth... By what way the sons and daughters of God do come to that felicity? To it, by the cross, as Christ himself did. And therewith all openeth unto them fountains of comfort. As first, that we have Christ a companion and fellow in our affliction. Secondly, that we shall be also his followers in that everlasting glory. Now, lest you think that being a follower of Jesus isn't such a good deal after all, let me say this out loud, this little secret that everybody already knows anyway. All those people who are on the highway to hell, they're going to be suffering too. There's no way around suffering in this life, but the suffering of those who are not connected to Christ is a lonely suffering. Those people who don't have Christ as a companion, as a fellow in their afflictions, they have to go it alone. And when it's all over and done for, those people will spend an eternity without Christ. So there are two options as I see them. Option number one, we can be joined to Christ so that we have a loving and sympathetic companion in the suffering that this life will throw at us. And so that we have an endless endless celebration and glory with that same companion in the life that is to come. Option number one. Option number two is less rosy. It looks like this. We can reject Christ. And we can go through the suffering that this life will throw at us alone. And then we will face an, an endless future of abandonment and suffering. I know that sounds really grim, but that's what Jesus taught. And I'd be lying to you. If I were to sugarcoat this. So having set the stage a little bit and having tried to steer you clear of a couple of common errors about suffering, let's dig into the heart of what this powerful passage teaches. I want to talk about the context of suffering because the context of suffering is going to tell you something about the purpose of suffering. So first, there is a cosmic 
context of suffering. When your tooth hurts, pretty much all that you can think about is that tooth. A few years back, I had a problem with one of my molars. I don't know the medical term, but the nerve was exposed. And there was a direct electrical line between all of the suffering in the world and this one tooth. And I felt like I was going to die. The pain would come in waves. And when a wave of pain hit, nothing else in the world mattered but that that pain stop. And when it did stop, 15 seconds later, the feeling of relief, the feeling of non-pain, the feeling of just regular life as a regular guy on planet Earth, it felt like heaven. When you're young and you complain about some problem you have, old people will say to you, well, at least you have your health. There's not one person in the world who has ever appreciated that comment. It is the dumbest thing you can ever say. But you know what? It's true. When you're feeling a world of pain and getting old brings all kinds of pains with it so old people know about this kind of stuff. When you're feeling a world of pain, there's nothing so sweet as ordinary non-pain, as ordinary health, as ordinary life that we all take for granted under God's common grace. That tooth pain came on me one Sunday morning, one Sunday when I had to preach, pretty much like every Sunday morning, and I was suffering. Waves of pain, 15 seconds in the fires of hell, followed by 15 seconds in the glories of heaven. It was a roller coaster of a sermon that morning. Now the first thing, Monday morning, I went to an emergency oral surgeon who yanked that tooth out of my jaw. He put his boot in my lower jaw and he used a crowbar and he pulled it out and it was a blessed relief that that pain was gone. Thank God for modern medicine. We groan under the suffering we face. Some of that suffering is physical. Some of it's psychological. Some of it's spiritual. We groan under that suffering. Paul takes that suffering and in verse 22 and 23, he puts it into a cosmic context. He writes... For we know that the whole creation, that's the cosmos, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. Now I want to make two points about this passage. Point number one, your suffering is connected with the suffering of the whole creation. Last week we talked about the unfolding ecological disaster that we are in the middle of right now. Human activity, human patterns of excessive consumption are driving to extinction 30,000 species of plants and animals every year. It's mind-boggling. Genesis chapter 3, which we read earlier in the service, talks about the planetary, the cosmic consequences of human sin. When human sin enters the picture, everything changed 
All of creation changed. It was subjected to futility. It was put into bondage to corruption. Point number one, our suffering is connected with the suffering of all of creation. And now point number two, this suffering that both we and all of creation feel, these are the pangs of childbirth. They're not the throes of death. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, Paul writes. Please see this. This is very important. Both hurt, but there is a real difference between the pains of childbirth and the pains of dying. I was there for all three of my children being born, and I got to tell you it nearly killed me every time. Ava's over there whooping and hollering. I'm trying to have a cup of tea. (laughs) Paul doesn't deny the pains of this life. And he says, our suffering is connected with the suffering of the whole of creation. But that suffering is a pain that leads to life, not to death. So that's the cosmic context of our suffering. But Paul also talks about a historical context of his suffering. Verse 18 and verse 19, he writes, I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and the daughters of God. Paul was living in a really hard time. Pagans ruled the world. His home country was occupied and ruled by an outside imperialist pagan government. And... As soon as he became a follower of Jesus Christ, his life of misery began. He was regularly beaten and imprisoned. He often had barely enough money to get by. And in the end, he was executed by the state because of his faith. This is a man who knows about suffering. This is a man who is living in a very hard time. And he says that the sufferings of his hard time are not worth comparing with the glory that's about to be revealed. Now, in case you think Paul is just trying to put on a brave face, keep in mind that Paul had had the unusual experience of meeting the resurrected Christ. Paul didn't become a Christian in the ordinary way. Paul had a very intense, supernatural encounter. He met someone who had been dead but was no longer dead. It wasn't a ghost either. He was a resurrected man, and he had a glorified body. He had the kind of body that you and I will have when we finally get to the new Jerusalem. Paul got a glimpse of the glory that is to come, the glory that has not yet been fully revealed, and it blew his mind. Paul knew what he was talking about When he said that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us because he had seen that glory. Please remember that when Paul talks about glory, he's not talking about something merely spiritual. He's not talking about some airy, fairy, abstract theological idea. He's talking about something that is supernatural and physical. Real bodies. Glorified bodies. Bodies which 
No longer have the effects of sin. Strong, beautiful, unbreakable, deathless bodies. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's what he means when he says the glory that will be revealed. That's the future that's in store for us. Remember back to Romans 6, 5, where Paul says, if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We're going to have bodies like Jesus when this story's over. Paul had met the resurrected Jesus. And so he had a first-hand idea of how insanely wonderful that glorified state is going to be. And he knew that he was in line for that same reality. And so he was able to say, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. So now we finally come to the hardest and most controversial part of this passage. The suffering of the world, the groaning of creation, which began with the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and which will not end until God establishes the new heavens and the new earth, all of that suffering and all of that groaning was ordained by God. I realize, of course, that our gut reaction is that God can't possibly be responsible for human sin, which is the immediate cause of the suffering and the groaning. We can't attribute to God anything connected with death and decay because he is life and health. But the text is pretty clear, even if the idea is a hard one. So let's take a look at this very closely. Verse 21 and 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is really complicated and I hope I can explain it well. I'm leaning heavily on John Piper's analysis of this passage. Yes, it is true that God is not responsible for human sin. God wants to have a relationship with free, rational creatures. So he made us with a free will capable of choosing either good or evil. Unfortunately, in the past we chose sin and we continue to choose sin. God is not responsible for that sin. That's on us. But after we sinned, God had a choice of his own to make. He could have left the world to go on the way it was before we had sinned. He could have said, there will be no consequences for human sin. No thorns to infest the ground. No pains in childbirth. No disease. No destruction. No death. That was an option for God. God can do as he pleases. He could have arranged things that way. But that's not what God chose. Instead, when we sinned, God chose to subject creation to futility. The NIV says subjected to frustration. The King James says subject to vanity. The New Living Translation says subjected to God's curse. Humankind sinned. And then creation was subjected to futility. The futility and the frustration and the curse that produces the suffering and the pain of this life. Now why would God do that? Because he was angry with Adam and Eve? 
Subjecting all of the cosmos to futility because of the little sin of Adam and Eve seems a bit of an overreaction, don't you think? No, God does not subject creation to futility because he's angry. He subjects creation to futility in hope. That's what Paul writes in verse 20. In hope. In hope of what? In hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Listen, once we started sinning, we were in bondage. In bondage to sin and in bondage to corruption. And God wants us to be free. And the only way that we have any hope of being free is if creation is subjected to frustration, to futility. I hope I'm not being too obscure here. Let me be more direct. If we were sinning, And God let us remain comfortable in our sin. We would never break free of sin. If God didn't let us suffer, there would be no hope for freedom. Now in the addiction business, that's called being an enabler. The enabler doesn't drink himself, but he makes the life of the drinker comfortable so that the drinker can continue to drink. The enabler fixes the things that the drinker breaks. The enabler pays the bills that the drinker forgets to pay. The enabler makes excuses for the drinker so that he won't lose his job. All of us in our sin would love to have An enabler. I would love to have an enabler. I would love to have an enabler to follow me around to clean up all of the messes that I make. The messes created by my lust and by my anger and by my sloth and by my pride. A fixer. An enabler. That's what my sin nature wants. But thanks be to God. Our creator refuses to be an enabler. Instead, he lets the creation be frustrated in hope of a freedom. Enablers think that they're being nice, but all they're really doing is keeping drunks in bondage. Until the alcoholic feels the sting of the consequences of his own actions, there is no hope of being set free. And in case you're thinking, I'm not a drunk... Let me tell you that all human sin operates exactly the same way that addiction operates. So God in his mercy, in his desire that we be free, allowed creation to be frustrated by the consequences of sin. And that's the pain that we feel. That's the pain that we see around us in the world. And there's a lot of it. And it's bad. And the only solution to it is a saving relationship With Jesus Christ. Sin is our revolt against God. Sin is our dumb attempt to be little gods ourselves. And as long as we're on that path, we're heading for destruction. And the only hope is that we turn around, that we repent. And that we fall on our knees and let God be God. And admit that we're not God. And cling to the cross. The suffering of this world is going to pass away. 
And all who are in Christ will experience an eternal glory that will make the trouble of this life seem like nothing. But while we're in this life, let us receive that suffering as a blessing from God. A blessing which drives us to Him. Let us praise God's name for not being an enabler who cleans up after us rather than letting us feel the pain of, and the sting of our own sin. The suffering of this world is not without purpose. It's here to drive us to Christ. Because only in Christ will we be free. Because only in Christ will we be who God made us to be. Because only in Christ will we experience glory. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your tough love. And we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for opening a way for our redemption and our freedom. Lord, I pray that you wouldn't shield us from the consequences of our sin, but that you would use those consequences to drive us to you. Lord, I pray that we would cling to the cross and the forgiveness that's there and the healing that's there and the redemption that's there and the adoption that's there. Lord, I pray that we would be found in you, that we would be sons and daughters joint heirs with Jesus, that we would be bound for glory, that we would have foretastes of glory here in this life. That you would give us mm, the ballast to weather the storms of this life, knowing that whatever this world throws at us, that you turn it to our blessing and to our good. Lord God, you love us. You sent your son to die for us. Give us the faith to cling to Him as our only hope. May You be honored and glorified by our lives. Continue to pursue us. Continue to bless us. Continue to prepare us for glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.